Welcome to the London Politica podcast. This is where we join industry thought leaders and experts to uncover the nexus of politics, markets, and society. My name is Modest Chavla, and the guest joining me today is, in many ways, Marine Le Pen's worst nightmare. Uh, joining me from Paris is Dr. Catherine Fieschi, who is the founder and director of CounterPoint, a consultancy that helps organizations navigate a new age of political and social risks. She's also the celebrated author of her 2019 book, Populocracy, Populocracy, The Tyranny of Authenticity and the Rise of Populism. Uh, Dr. Fieschi, it is so wonderful to have you on the show. It's a pleasure. It's a real pleasure to be here. So I want to kind of begin uh, where you began in the book. Uh, you know, you first sort of met Jean-Marie Le Pen uh, after it was it sort of 18 months of trying to reach out to the right person. Uh, and uh, I, I just, you know, what, what did that interaction teach you? How did you go about meeting him? What was that like? So, I mean, at the time, uh, I was a uh, I was a postgraduate student. I was writing my PhD, uh, and I was writing my PhD for McGill University, so North American institution. And um, and I remember saying to my supervisor that I really, really felt that it was very difficult to write about populism without actually meeting populist leaders, because um, you know, populism certainly doesn't boil down. Uh, to to you know a type of leadership there's more to it than that but still you kind of need to understand what these people are like um, so I I tried very very hard to to meet him and um, and I have to say that you know it was one of those experiences I met him several times I mean I met him probably about a dozen times as I researched my my PhD and I think you know the the biggest the biggest there were two big takeaways one takeaway was that, um, you know, interacting with, uh, with, a, with such political personalities is absolutely key to understanding their, their worldview, right? Including the fact that they don't listen to you, they don't care what you ask, you know, they are, you know, absolutely on their own track. Um, but the other real key takeaway was, you know, that their worldview and the way they talk about it is made up of a lot of lies, right? Um, it was one of the really shocking things to me that, you know, he would tell me one thing at one meeting and then he would completely contradict himself mm -hmm. uh, in, in, in the next. And, you know, and I was, a, you know, I was much younger and I was a little bit shy about saying, but I, I don't understand. That's not what you said last time. And if I did, you know, he just brushed it away. And it was a real insight that that stayed with me for, you know, uh, for all my work afterwards, which is that, you know, one of the great differences between, you know, us loosely called, you know, liberals, uh, and, you know, and people like Jean-Marie Le Pen that we loosely label populists is that they don't have the qualms that we have about lying and, and manipulating. For them, it's, you know, it's, it's part of the game. It's part mm -hmm. of the trade. So whereas we would be embarrassed about being caught out, they feel absolutely no embarrassment at all. And the end justifies the means. <laughs> yeah. It's so fascinating because I was, you know, interviewing some people when I was doing my dissertation and, and there's always the struggle uh, between who I'm interviewing and the difference in our political opinions, but how to square that to sort of reach uh, anything useful I could get from them. And, and you know, it's, it, it, it's probably not unreasonable to say that, that Jean-Marie Le Pen is, you know, a racist, an anti-Semite, possibly a fascist. Uh, <laughs> and, and I assume your political opinions are at least a little bit different from his. Did that, did that ever, you know, was that ever cause for tension between the two of you or uh, did that you know, hinder your work at all or I think I think it wasn't cause for tension because you know he he didn't um, 
he wasn't particularly worried about what I thought about him. Um, you know, I was a I was a young PhD student, but you know, very occasionally, you know, I'd ask him a question or I'd make a remark, and then he'd pause and laugh. And several times he said to me, "I, I don't understand, Catherine. You know, how can an intelligent young woman like you be left wing?" <laughs> So it was quite it was quite interesting that he was very well aware that, you know, we really did not have the same mm. political opinions. Um, but, you know, I I wasn't uh, you know, I wasn't on his political radar. He didn't really care very much about that. <laughs> very cool. And and he I mean, some might say sort of the era of, you know, this counter revolution, counter revolutionary sort of, uh, you know, pre World War Two, post World War Two political right movement. And then, you know, one might sort of extend that lineage and say Marine Le Pen is, is uh, you know, the heir to her father's politics. And, and I'm wondering how you feel, you know, how, how she sort of adapted, uh, how she, A, you know, carries the same sort of some political elements, or, and B, you know, has adapted some of those to sort of the current environment. Uh, and essentially, how different is she uh, from Jean-Marie Le Pen? Um, so, I've been, I, you know, I've, I've met her a couple of times, and, you know, one of the first times I've met her and I, and I, I chronicled this in in other places. Was in a it was it was actually a bit odd in the sense that um, I was interviewing him at his home, and you know she came in wanted to show him a clip of somebody who was part of a documentary and who was this elderly um, Algerian gentleman who was accusing Jean Marie Le Pen of having tortured him. Um, so it was a very bizarre. Uh, moment of being the three of us, you know, watching this interview. Um, and both of them were laughing, right? And this is when you know that, you know, you're really in the presence of people whose norms and values are really not, you know, really not your own. Um, you know, and at the time, I remember thinking that she was as ruthless as her father, um, and that, you know, the apple doesn't fall, fall far from the tree, and etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. I have to say that, you know, since she's taken over the party, I mean, you know, a lot of a lot of what she's done has been about mainstreaming the image of the party. And so obviously she's toned down a lot of things. But I also think that, you know, she's a woman and of a different generation. And there are simply some things that, um, you know, beyond whether or not she thinks they will play out or not play out, you know, uh, with their, uh, with their potential supporters or their supporters. I think there are just some things that she has moved beyond, right, just because of her age and, and because of, of her gender. So, you know, for example, you know, I don't think, I don't actually think she's bothered at all about, you know, same-sex marriage or homosexuality. I really, uh, you know, this is not something that she's uh, particularly been been vocal on. Um, you know, I don't think that, you know, she's particularly anti-Semitic, uh, you know, in, in the way that her father was in that kind of, you know, deeply right-wing conservative French way that you still had, you know, well after the, the second world, the second world war, and which is part of, alas, of French political culture. I actually think she is, you know, not that, um, you know, I, I don't think she is uh, like that. But, but on the other hand, I think other things, you know, have, have, come to the fore with her, uh, you know, particularly, uh, particularly Islam, right? So, you know, so the mainstreaming is also figuring out what plays with her, her current audience. And, you know, she, 
and I'm sure you know this, you know, she really set out to to broaden the appeal of the party when she took over in 2011. So instead of just looking at, you know, people who were anti-immigration, anti-Islam, uh, you know, essentially, um, you know, ra racist and, and, and xenophobes, she broadened the, the appeal out to basically, you know, to ordinary people who felt they were being hard done by, um, you know, and basically she started targeting lower income voters and particularly lower income voters in parts of France, particularly northern France, uh, you know, in, in vastly deindustrialized uh, areas, right? Um, so for those people, you know, she was obviously, you know, playing up a, a, a different set of a different a different set of issues. So I don't think, you know, I don't think she's a, a much more palatable human being. But I do think that, you know, she is fundamentally different from her father. And let's face it, you know, they are not on good terms. And I don't think that's just for the cameras. I think that there are a lot of things on which on which they 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 disagree, um, which explains you know the huge rift between them. Mm. I mean, so speaking of kind of your you know personal encounters with them, it, it, I can kind of gauge this uh, quite apparent sense of even in their personal lives, this sort of brash brazenness. You're not really it, presumably they knew you might write about these things, and and they could laugh about this documentary in front of you, or they could you know lie in front of you very sort of blatantly. It, it seems like the sort of aspect of their personal lives carries you know a sort of image of you know saying what you want and saying what it carries into the political and when i kind of contrast that with you know the united states some people look at the same quality in trump and say that's the reason we voted for him and analysts look at that and say you know it's a bit of an act and you can kind of see the act falter sometimes this whole sort of i will say anything i want and uh you know i don't care about anyone else's opinion and and, and that that sort of you know sentiment and the way they portray themselves but it seems less so maybe that that's, you know, the, the case with, with the Le Pens. Would, would you sort of agree with that? I think that, um, I think there's, there's, there's a number of things. One is that, you know, when Jean-Marie Le Pen was on the rise, um, you know, particularly the 1980s, where he was, you know, he, he, his political power really increased and, and um, you know, they, they got a few seats in the National Assembly in 1986, um, you know, and then there was this kind of constant rise. His biggest gripe was the fact that he never got, you know, that nobody wanted to speak to him and that he didn't get enough airtime, uh, you know, that the, the media was biased against him and, and so on and so forth. Um, you know, that's one of the reasons why he was willing to talk to somebody like me who made no bones about the fact that, you know, I was really not at all, you know, uh, on the on the same uh, on the same political level as, as he was. Right. Um, but, you know, for him, there was no such thing as bad publicity. He was desperate for publicity. And one way to do that was, you know, to be big and bold and brash and, you know, to say outrageous things and to pretend to have slipped up when, in fact, you had really slipped up you know you you'd meant to be you know to be outrageous um and, and, and you know it is worth remembering that you know we're talking about the we're talking about the 1980s this was a long time ago you know he, he in some ways you know somebody like him you know paved the way for the trumps and the farages and you know and the and even on the other side uh, the beppe grillos on you know left populists in in italy and salvini i mean he really was a vanguard um and and to do that he had to be incredibly 
bombastic, right? Um, and I don't know how much of, of it, you know, is an act, even in terms of the other uh, populists. Um, you know, one of one of the things, you know, it goes back to the the lying. One of the things that I'm convinced about is that, you know, being really brazen about the fact that you're lying is an incredibly effective way for a Trump, for example, or, you know, or a Salvini, etc. It's an incredibly brazen way of saying, I really don't care about your liberal norms, about truth, about your liberal, you know, political mainstream, you know, I don't care who I offend, you know, and, and actually, I think that there's something quite, you know, attractive to some people, somebody who's, you know, kind of winking and saying, you know, I'm lying, you know, I'm lying, I know that you know, I'm lying. And in a sense, you know, the subtext is, I'm, I'm just, I'm willing to blow all the norms out of the water, to prove to you that I'm actually on your side. I'm just an ordinary person, we all lie, you know, and it's, it's, it's quite a, I think it's quite a sobering thought because this is a politician who's not saying, you know, uh, you know, I'm 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 a good person or I'm, you know, I'm an ordinary person. I'm a good good man, like you know, like uh, other good men. Basically, he's saying Trump is saying I'm just as bad as the worst of you are. Um, you know, who's going to throw the first stone? Mm. And and I think you know it, it it's a bit scary that that it that it works. So maybe an act, but it's a really effective act. <laughs> Very, very interesting way of thinking about it, especially because it, it sort of, uh, you know, symbolizes how bad the polarization, the political polarization is, because um, at least until you'd say, you know, 2008 times, you, you everyone would agree the truth is the ultimate value and the left and the right are different ways of approaching it. And, and you know, but 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 you wouldn't sort of disagree on that. It's, it's seeming to me for the first time that even that isn't something the left and right and or maybe the left and right is a long way of categorizing this, but, you know, the sort of populist and whatever the other side yeah. is can't agree on uh, on the mm. value of the truth. And, and um, you know, when you're at the kind of fringes and it's so politically polarized, it kind of makes sense why uh, certain, you know, uh, parts of you know these political parties would reach out to similar parts in other countries and try yeah. to establish these kind of transnational uh you know alliances almost and to me there's like a weird ironic almost cosmopolitanism to that when you know the populist right does it when marie le pen tries to do something with vox uh or yeah. with you know with with uh some sort of something with Orban in hungary uh or you know the steve bannon and and, and hungary and, and there's there's weird connections there um what, what's the value of that for these leaders would you say so I think it's really important, um, uh, you know, and I, I was writing about it recently because I've never been particularly convinced by their attempts at, you know, creating international ties, right? And, there, and there's something, you know, there was something quite paradoxical about these, these parties and party leaders who, you know, the one thing they have in common is they're all nationalists, right? You know, whatever else, on whatever uh, other measure they may differ, you know, most of these populists, you'd say, well, they're nationalists. Um, and so if you're a nationalist, you know, that doesn't make you particularly well uh, equipped 
to cooperate uh, with with others across across national divides. And you know, we've seen this in you know in European elections. You know, there's you know the European elections take place. It's always the same thing. Then you know there's a strong vote for the far right or the populist right, depending on which country you're talking about. And then you know everybody says, oh my God, what if they band together, right? And then they try and band together, and it's a complete mess. It's a complete mess. I mean, you know, I remember not not after the last 2019 elections, but the, the elections in 2014. It was so funny. You know, they were insulting each other and they were, you know, accusing each other of being fascists and of being Nazis. And, you know, it was it was a surreal scene. Um, so I never really believed that they would that they would coalesce. But but something's changed here. Uh, and, um, you know, last month in May, the conservative uh, party conference, uh, the U.S. conservative party conference, CPAC, um, you know, held its meeting in Hungary, right? Um, and, you know, this, this makes me slightly uneasy, you know, with Fox News behind it. And, uh, you know, they had Bolsonaro's son uh, from Brazil attend and, uh, Marine Le Pen didn't go, but you know she kind of she sent her uh, her acting in a sense the the acting party chair at the moment. Um, you know Trump sent messages and so on, and you know I think that one of the things that's changed is that they are all realizing a the value of a big media network. You know, there there's the this thinking now in Europe that they need the equivalent of Fox News. That, that's the instrument that they're missing to be effective on a European wide scale. And I also think the other thing is, is money, right? And it's, uh, it's Russian money that's gone to Orban, it's Russian money that's gone to Marine Le Pen. And it's a lot of, um, it's a lot of money being channeled through American channels, uh, you know, into Europe, via Hungary, because now obviously Russia is much more complicated uh, for that. So I think we're at a bit, we are potentially, I'm not saying it's 100% certain, but we are potentially at a point, you know, where I'm slightly alarmed that, you know, this connection across the Atlantic, but also across with the Americas, is starting to occur with a lot more money and more media savvy uh, involved. Uh, you know, um, I'm hoping I'm I'm wrong, but I detect a shift. Yeah, um, with the kind of you know emphasis you place, particularly on big media, there seems to be an emphasis on perceptions and the optics of things. And so I think when people say Marine Le Pen has really tried to mainstream her party in order to gain the vote. I might look at that and say, you know, it, it's mainstreaming in the optics of it, but not necessarily in the actual policies that she espouses. Um, and, you know, it's a different haircut. It's a different way of posing in pictures or posing with the different people uh, or, you know, arguing for things slightly differently or maybe appealing to a broader voter base. But like the fundamental nuts and bolts of what she's out doesn't seem to have changed that, you know, that much. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. I would agree with you. Um, you know, I mean, I was, um, I was, uh, you know, I, I kept saying to people who talked about her mainstreaming, and it's true, you know, the image has been mainstreamed, the language has been mainstreamed, you know, she, but basically what it is, is that, you know, she's become smarter about what you can say on primetime television, uh, right? And if you did go and look at her uh, program, her electoral program, I mean, it was bone chilling, 
um, you know, it was it was uh, no different from the things that they were saying 10 years ago. And, you know, and bone chilling also in its boldness in terms of, you know, changing, you know, very key French constitutional rights, you know, like, you know, like the fact that, you know, you, you inherit, um, you know, you transmit citizenship uh, through soil uh, and not through, and not through blood, right? If you're born in, if you're born in France, you know, you're entitled to, to French citizenship. So, you know, she, these things are foundational, uh, you know, in, 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 in France, in, the, in this country, you know, and she was, you know, proposing, you know, really far reaching, really far reaching uh, changes. So, you know, she was much smarter about what she said about Putin and what she said about Ukraine. And, you know, she basically massaged all of that. But deep down, you know, it's really still a party that is racist, xenophobic, anti-immigrant, um, and, you know, I think the, the big difference with the way that things were when her father, uh, you know, uh, was at the head of the party is that there's a lot less of an emphasis on Catholicism, right? So mm -hmm. it's, it's a, it's, you know, it's a less Christian, uh, less Christian party, quite, quite the opposite. You know, her big argument against Islam is, you know, we don't want any religion, uh, you know, in, in the public, in the public realm. Um, but otherwise, yeah, it's, you know, it's a deeply racist nationalist uh, party. Yeah. And I mean, the mainstreaming, we've so far really discussed what might be considered, you know, endogenous reasons for it, the things Le Pen herself has done. Um, but I also think part of it might be, you know, these exogenous factors like the the entry of candidates like Zemmour, who initially when Zemmour came in with more with opinions that are more far right than Le Pen herself, uh, it was kind of seen as a, you know, as a, as a problem for Le Pen because that might split the vote for her. And I think the effect it actually ended up having is uh, because of what turned out to be even more extremist opinions, Le Pen seemed more mainstream, attracted more of the centrist voters that maybe would have otherwise voted for Macron possibly. Um, and it actually ended up helping her. Um, is, is that, is that, is that absolutely, or? absolutely. I mean, you know, he, he, let's face it, he did steal votes away from her. Right. Um, you know, uh, I, I don't think it would have, it wouldn't have changed the result. Uh, she still, you know, she would have been in the second round. She just would have been on a higher score. Uh, you know, and I still think she would, and she would have been beaten. Uh, you know, at the end of that, at the end of that second round. Nevertheless, he, you know, he did take a chunk away from her. And I think, but, but I do think that, you know, he was so outrageous, exactly as you say, that it made her look uh, more, more mainstream. Um, you know, and I, I also think she, you know, she mainstreamed, but she did mainstream herself on some key issues, even though she didn't, you know, really handle it all that well during the campaign, you know, particularly on Europe. Last in the last election in 2017, she essentially crashed uh, because she, it wasn't clear what she really thought about the EU and whether she was proposing, you know, a referendum on on exit, uh, you know, a Frexit. Uh, you know, she wasn't clear on where she stood on the euro. This time, she'd you know she'd kind of done her homework and gone more mainstream on that because she realized that there were no votes to be to, to to be to be gotten but yeah these exogenous factors Zemmour is one and the other one is actually the fact that Macron you know uh, I mean he was re-elected and he's a perfectly competent president but you know he doesn't win any popularity contests right uh you know and he is you know 
in a sense, the people who are in power right now in France, however competent, uh, you know, and however pro-European, and, and I think all of this is, you know, is crucial uh, at the moment, but they are a, a particular kind of establishment, um, you know, and they do not offer any kind of proof of connection or, you know, or even much care about, you know, the plight of, you know, very ordinary citizens. And, you know, the more arrogant Macron and the more self-assured he comes across, um, you know, the more ordinary and mainstream, you know, a Marine Le Pen figure looks, you know, and there was a brilliant campaign picture where she's, you know, she's sitting in a chair and she has a little cat on her lap, you know, and she basically, you know, she just looks like her aunt Mabel, right? Um, you know, and that that's quite effective, particularly in contrast to, you know, somebody like Macron, you know, who, you know, even self-labeled his himself as Jupiterian, right? So, you know, I mean, he, he basically, you know, set her up to look very ordinary, which is what she wanted. It kind of, you know, it makes me think about how we conceive of, uh, you know, French politics and then try to build models around what essentially are just personalities. Uh, and particularly at, you know, the presidential level, people are voting for personalities, not parties, but we still try to think of the, them in these models. And I mean, one of the, maybe the sort of mainstream orthodoxy coming into this was, uh, this kind of bipolar model, right, of, uh, of saying there is an elite and there is those who support the elite and then there's a sort of a populist sentiment. Uh, and then some might say, okay, that's too oversimplified. Let's call it a tripartite model or tripolar model and say there's a, you know, a populist left, a populist right, and like Macron's, you know, liberal, democratic, centrist, reasonable, pragmatic, sort of middle. Um, and, you know, you've kind of said in, in some of your publications that all these models are a bit of an oversimplification, a bit of a facade. Um, if you were to create one or really think about, you know, these things at sort of a more macro level than just personalities, how would you conceive these? What are the different sort of blocks currently in French politics that are relevant? So, you know, it's really interesting because, you know, French politics, as you know, this is, we live under the Fifth Republic, <laughs> five, right? You know, we also had a couple of, uh, you know, a couple of short-lived empires and, you know, uh, you know, since 1789, never, you know, never a dull moment. But, you know, the way that you can summarize this is almost a kind of, uh, uh, you know, a tension between, you know, particularly when you look at the various republics, a tension between those republics that were centered around a strong leader and weak parties. And then, you know, those republics that were centered around very strong parties and a, and a weak leader. The, the Fifth Republic right now in France is, you know, what people fear more than anything is a return to the to the to the fourth republic right where the parties are just unruly so when when de gaulle kind of came up with the fifth republic you know his view was yeah not none of these parties running amok anymore right we need a strong president so so here we have this very strange constitution and i know this sounds a bit geeky but it's important because it you know it really explains how populism can arise uh, in France in this kind of personality context. So, you know, you've got a strong president, but you've also got, you know, a relatively strong parliament. You've got this weird hybrid. Um, and so, you know, everything is always this fight between whether, you know, 
the, 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 the presidential candidate can then emancipate himself or herself from the party and, and govern in the name of everybody, right, as a president might, or, or whether, you know, he or she, you know, would need, you know, the, the support of the parties around them. What we've got right now is that, you know, Macron did something in 2017, which is that he basically trashed the party system. Uh, you know, he created this, this movement that basically, you know, got elected essentially through a lot of socialist support. The Socialist Party in, in 2017 was on 6%. You know, this year it's on below 2 right? Uh, you know, this is, this, is ex this is extraordinary. You know, this is a, a party where just over five years ago, the president was from this party. The party was in power, right? So, you know, it's a spectacular fall from grace, um, you know, and he's done, you know, he's started to do the same thing to the right, you know, the mainstream right by, by, by co-opting them. So right now, We've basically got this, this situation where people are saying, well, you know, there's an elite vote, as you say, and then there's a populist vote, you know, so the people who are optimistic and, you know, want to move forward, roughly 30% of the population, and the people who are pissed off about everything, and, you know, want to trash the system, and that's about, you know, probably about 60% of the population, if you leave out people who didn't vote. And then it's true that, you know, but when it's, it's true that when you look at it and when you look at what's happening for the legislative elections, the first round of which is uh, on Sunday, actually, you have something that does look like three parties, right? You have a center with Macron, you've got a powerful radical left alliance, and then, you know, you've, you know, you've got a right, you've got a right that is bit mainstream, bit hard right, and, and so on. And so it looks, you know, it looks like we've found a new equilibrium, right, you know, with this center. And I'm just not convinced that that's the case, because Macron um, is, you know, hasn't built a proper party. Uh, this isn't really a proper center. This is, you know, people who come in from the right and come in from the left. And if you shake it hard enough, you know, you get something that looks like the center. But, you know, th this is not a, there's no ideology beneath it, right? There's no, or not even an ideology, but there's no doctrine really beneath it. So my sense is that France right now, we are still decomposing slightly, right? Uh, and the really interesting election is going to be five years from now, because Macron won't be able to run. So if, if he wants the centrist option to survive, he needs to build a party that survives him. Uh, and I'm, you know, I'm not sure much, how much of an appetite there is, because can you really have a party without a leader leading it? And will Macron, would Macron allow somebody else to emerge in these five years to become the leader of the party that he's no longer going to lead? That doesn't, that doesn't square with the, the Jupiterian, you know, rather arrogant uh, young man that, you know, that, that, that we've all seen. So I'm a little bit skeptical as to whether, you know, we can actually see what's happened. We can yet draw conclusions. I think we are at a moment of real transformation, right? You know, the, the traditional parties, the traditional French parties have just been decimated uh, since 2017. Uh, and there is no, you know, in, in political science, as you know, we talk about re recomposition of the party system. I don't think that anything is recomposing yet. I, th I still think we're really decomposing. <laughs>
Yeah, yeah. It, it, you know, when you talk about that, when you talk about this possibly being returned to the Fourth Republic, it just it reminds me of that that quote by Gramsci, which is, uh, you know, chaos emerges uh, when the old is dying and the new is not yet born. Exactly. Uh, and and I think that might be a good way of sort of summarizing that. But, uh, you know, I, I've read, I want to kind of zoom out for, for the last yeah. question. And, and there's so much you've written about populism and, and bits of it that I've read. And I mean, almost anything, not even just your work, but, you know, work on populism in general, whenever I read it, it tends to make me feel bad. Uh, it tends to <laughs> paint a little bit of a sort of a pessimistic view. It, 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 it's never quite uh, what you'd read on, you know, an 8 a.m., you know, TV breakfast show sort of thing, right? Um, and and you've kind of described populism not necessarily, in, at least in the way it is right now, as a transition, as as an endpoint, but it's more a transition to an endpoint. And I'm wondering if you, you know, could look at that endpoint in a certain way, the way that it's moving. Is there anything optimistic about that endpoint that that you know any any dimension of it where we might actually be better off than we currently are? Well, so I think that you know. Um, whether it's, you know, I mean, the United States are, you know, are a cautionary tale, right, of, you know, what happens when polarization, you know, really overtakes everything else. But, you know, here we have politics that are a bit polarized, but also fragmented, you know, in, in, in Italy, it's, you've got something, you know, that resembles this as well, um, you know, not to mention the United Kingdom, right? Um, I think that, first of all, uh, one of the things that populism has really drawn people's attention to, uh, two things. One is that uh, there is an expectation on the part of voters and there is a need given the kind of turbulences that we face, climate, COVID, uh, you know, uh, war on European soil, right? War on the EU's doorstep and all of that, that, you know, that, but there is a demand for government to be involved. There is a role for the state, right? And that has, you know, and that is, it's partly, you know, the fact that populist voters or, you know, voters who vote for populist parties, I should, that's the most more accurate way of referring to them, you know, are people who are in demand of some protection, right? We cannot just let the market do it. Right. Uh, if we let the market do it, people's livelihoods get trashed. Uh, you know, we you know, we end up with what we saw in, in the United States in terms of steelworks, ditto in terms of the United Kingdom, ditto in terms of northern France, vast deindustrialization. Um, and, you know, I, and I think that that is the that was the, the result of this, this thought that, you know, the, the, the market would somehow regulate politics. You know, the fact that voters got pissed off about being left behind, as, as we say, um, you know, certainly economically and culturally, it's, you know, in a different way. Um, I think that that was a really important thing to hear. Uh, you know, that there is a role for the state, that there is a role for, you know, regulation and so on and so forth. And, you know, and I, and I hope that, you know, that we've also learned the lesson on what happens when you just let the media, you know, uh, when you completely deregulate media content, right? And then you've got the Fox Newses kind of, uh, you know, emerging. This is all thanks to Reagan, right? Um, so I, I think that that's a, that's a really important lesson. The second lesson is that, that, that I think populist, populism has taught us the hard way is that politics is not 
just about being technocrats, right? So aside from the fact that there's a role for the state and a role for government, there's a role for the state and a role for government in a version of politics that isn't just technocratic politics, right? That people need to hear a broader narrative, right? A vision, you know, a vision for, for their country. That it's not just about technical policies, but it's about it's about politics, about people's perception of what kind of power they have in the public realm, but also over their own lives. And I think, you know, the fact that that populism is driven, you know, by really deep emotional charges, right? You know, people are angry, people are outraged, people think, think, think that things are unfair. That too is a really important reminder that, you know, you don't govern just through Excel sheets, right? Uh, and, and, and I think that those are two lessons that it seems to me we have learned. And, you know, and I think the place and I know that, alas, this no longer really applies to the UK, but one of the places where that lesson has been learned most obviously is in Europe, right, is at the EU level, where, you know, I mean, it's still chaotic and cack-handed and stops and starts, and it's 27 member states, right? But at the same time, you know, you have a commission that is now a political actor, right? You have a president of the commission in von der Leyen, and, you know, you might like her, you might not like her, but the fact is that she takes positions about where, what Europe stands for, right? And, you know, about European unity and, and European solidarity and so on. This is, this is, this is new. And even the, the EU's capacity to deal with people like Orban, for example, right? Uh, you know, even though you always have to negotiate because it's a game of 27 players, right? Even though that's the case, it seems to me that um, the EU is actually a really interesting case to look at of, of political learning in part because, you know, everyone in the EU has thought, well, A, they saw, they saw what happened with Brexit, right? But also even within the EU, there's a kind of learning going on with people saying, hang on, you know, these populists, you know, they're a thorn in our side, but what, what they also show is they do reveal what people really need from politics, right? And as I said, you know, it's not just about Excel, uh, you know, spreadsheets and, and you know, and, and, and quite technical policymaking. It's also about a vision of politics, Right, which which had gone. Let's face it, it, it had gone missing. I mean, I wish we'd learned this lesson in a slightly less disheveled way, but that makes me optimistic because I think we are learning from it. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad we ended on that sort of more optimistic. <laughs> uh, Dr. Piaski, incredibly fascinating discussion, and no, thank you so much for joining us. It was such a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. And to find out more about London Politica, visit our website, londonpolitica.com, and follow us on LinkedIn. And that's all for this episode, folks. Stay tuned, stay safe, and I'll see you next week.